One of the best ways to plan a trip to another country is with some insider pointers from friends who've got years of experience living there. That way, you can approach a culture on its own terms. Things always go better when you go local with gusto. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, the authors of The People's Guide to Mexico are back with some more practical insights on getting beyond the security walls of the resorts and tips on fitting into the real Mexico that awaits. The Mexican people are amazingly tolerant and accommodating when you try to speak Spanish. You can slaughter the language and they won't criticize you. And a panel of American-Italian women explain some of the issues they have to tackle day after day living in the macho-dominated culture of Italy. If you're watching Italian television at all, the only image of women that you're seeing are usually scantily clad bimbos who have not a lot to say. Plus, listeners share travel tales of their own as we explore the world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you've ever felt your cultural values clash with what you've experienced in another country, then you'll want to stay with us for the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Three tour guides who live in Italy tell us what kinds of pressures they face as women in Italy's version of a macho Latin culture, and why it's still the place they choose to call home. Let's start out with a return visit from the authors of the classic People's Guide to Mexico. Carl Franz and Lorena Havens have been updating their cross-cultural guide to the pleasures of authentic Mexico ever since they first drove their van across the border back in the 1970s. And there are go-to experts to help you safely and confidently make your way into the heart of old Mexico. Carl and Lorena, thanks for joining us again here on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, it's great Wonderful to see you to again. Wonderful to be here. You guys have been writing this book now since you were kids. I mean, it came out in 1972. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still at it. It's out in its new 14th edition. And those of us who were around in, in traveling age back in the 70s, we know this had a cult following. This was the ultimate guide for the backpacker or the Volkswagen vanner or the vagabond through Mexico. Now, those were the days when you could just... Uh, you know, you could do your whole hippie thing. Of course, today we have all the modern technology and everybody's more fluent and Mexico is better developed and, uh, you know, people speak in English and we have ATMs now instead of traveler's checks. Can you still basically do the philosophy we're talking about? Absolutely. You, you've just come back and there's no, there's no real reason not to have that set the bar high for that magical, footloose and fancy-free, wind-blowing-in-your-hair experience. Yes, and as in those days, you have to pay attention. You know, there's a lot of fear about all the drug violence. In our early days, we kept running into ends of the road where the only previous travelers had been drug dealers and Volkswagen vans. And we met a lot of federales. And we learned to be really careful if you're going to the end of the road. We got searched, and we never got shot at. No, that's not true. We got shot at in Guadalajara, actually, the first trip down. But it was a it was nothing to do with drugs. It was a random maniac. <laughs> <laughs> random maniac. Well, that was in seventy two. But in your days of traveling, you've seen a lot of ups and downs in tourism in Mexico. What is your basic advice for somebody who likes to road trip? They've done the road trip in the United States. They want to take a vacation down in Mexico. They've been inspired by your experiences in your you know your Volkswagen van that kind of thing. They'd love to hang out on the beach. What's the way to road trip Mexico these days? First off, make sure you have enough time. It's not a place to race down. Mm-hmm. It's a big country. So you want to make sure you have enough time to actually experience the country, you know, and to be able to stay some places and not just be traveling every day. And you, rather than spend a good part of your vacation driving there and driving back, you could just fly right into a city in the region you want to explore and then and use public transportation? Yeah, I think personally that's probably would be my preference these days, if, especially if I don't have a lot of time. And, mm-hmm. and you know, back in the 60s and 70s, we had more time than money, mm-hmm. and, and things were really, really cheap. So, yeah, fly into any large city. Mexico City would be a good choice. You can get out of Mexico City on a bus. And What's the bus system like? Do people take, is it like Greyhound buses that we have here? No, 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 really. I mean, our buses are, are like from the, uh, you know, the ice age compared to Mexico. Is that Mexico right? has... I wouldn't be surprised if Mexico has the most advanced bus system in the world. I mean, that's probably a rash claim, but it's unbelievable, really. Affordable? Affordable, and it goes everywhere, so everywhere. So you want to go from here to there, there's going to be a bus connection. There's going to be a bus, and then you don't have to deal with parking, you don't have to deal with insurance and gas stations and all of that. You get to your destination, get a hotel, 
And then if you want to use local buses and cabs. What would you spend for a three-hour bus ride out of Mexico City, just ballpark? Three-hour bus ride, 10 bucks? 10 bucks, yeah. yeah. And in a small yeah. town, some, some untouristy place, uh, or not even untouristy, just some nice town in the Colonial Circle, what would you spend for a simple, adequate, but, but local-style uh, double room in a hotel? Go out for a dinner that night in a local place? Yeah, yeah. What are you talking? Eight to ten dollars. Eight to ten dollars. Restaurant meals aren't as cheap as we wish they were. But you can get a double room in a perfectly sleepable place for 25 bucks. That's kind of my ceiling. Yeah. (laughs) And then ride a bus for ten dollars for three hours? God, I'm spending too much time in Europe. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking People's Guide to Mexico with the authors of that wonderful guidebook, Carl Franz and Lorena Havens. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Esther's on the line calling from Dallas in Texas, pretty close to Mexico. Esther, thanks for your call. Well, thank you, Rick. Enjoy the program. And uh, yes, being this close, I've been to Mexico many times. And I have two questions, actually. One is that as Many people are very concerned about their safety in Mexico, especially as a female. I want to know about any additional advice, precautions, and all. And my second question was about, I cannot think of the name of the train ride, but there's a famous canyon Copper Canyon. Copper Copper Canyon, Canyon, right. I wanted to know, get your take on that and any information, insights you might give on that. Okay, well, I'll I'll, uh, defer to Lorena on the female traveler question. But as far as the Copper Canyon, the train starts in Chihuahua City and goes to Los Mochis on on the Pacific Coast. My preference is to start on the Pacific Coast at El Fuerte, a small town near Los Mochis, and take the train toward Chihuahua. That's to the east. And the reason for that is because of you'll pass through the most beautiful parts of the canyon in daylight. And it's just, a, I think, a, a more interesting experience. Also, El Fuerte is a very small, beautiful little colonial town with a rich, rich history that most people don't visit. So, yeah, do it in that direction or make it a round trip from Chihuahua to El Fuerte and back. Lorena, um, Esther was talking about how women can be comfortable and and not reckless in Mexico. What advice would you give? Well, I'd say the first thing is to look at other Mexican women and see what they're doing. Uh, If I'm traveling alone, say a bus or the train, when I'm at the station, I'll sort of look around and see some women that I think I'd feel comfortable with and sit next to them. Hmm. Once I'm on the bus, especially if you're on one of the fancier buses, it really doesn't matter. But things like probably the biggest cultural difference is that women do not meet men's eyes on a casual basis. I don't meet men's eyes when I'm traveling. And if I do have to deal with a man, then yes, straight on, no flirting. Mm-hmm. But if you just the casual catching of an eye is considered a flirt. I dress very conservative. If I'm traveling alone, for sure, I'll have my hair, say, in braids or a scarf on. It's not free-flowing, definitely. Oh, look, there's a gringo. Mm. Um, just being aware, like at night, at 9 o'clock at night, all the Mexican women are home. They're not out on the street. If I have to be out after 9, I'll grab a cab to go home, unless I know the area well and feel safe to do it. So it's really paying attention to how the Mexican women are relating and adapt it. Esther, thanks for your call. That was excellent. Thank you very much, both of you, for the great advice, and thank you, Rick. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Mexico. God, it is so exciting to think how much awaits people south of the border. When you're traveling south of the border, Carl and Lorena, how is the language barrier these days? I don't really consider it to be a barrier. I think it's a a fear that we have. The Mexican people are amazingly tolerant and accommodating when you try to speak Spanish. You can slaughter the language and they won't criticize you. In fact, I often have to tell my Mexican friends, listen, I know (laughs) I'm making mistakes, don't let me make anything really embarrassing, please. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, Rick, another really great way to get yourself into Mexico is to go to a language school. Yeah. Fuerteventura is a town that I really enjoy. There's very few foreigners there. It's a wonderful climate near Mexico City. And there's a lot of language schools there. And a language school will arrange for you to have a home stay. You'll be staying with a family. I had one family that was an aunt, the mother, and the daughter. Mm. 
the daughter spoke English, but she wouldn't let me speak it in the house. And she corrected me whenever, you know, I was speaking and making me speak it properly. And then I went to the school during the day. And two or three weeks, even a week, will make a difference. In two or three weeks, you'll find yourself just so comfortable hanging yeah. out in Mexico. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Rachel from Madison, Wisconsin, emailed us. And she wrote, I recently took a road trip around the Yucatan Peninsula. It was wonderful. I explored Merida, Campeche, and ended back in Tulum for some beach time. It was a wonderful mix of beach, cities, and ruins. This trip allowed time to explore Chichen Itza and La Ruta Puc on our own. We were stopped by police at routine traffic stops but had no issues. I actually prefer the Mexican rules of the road. That's an interesting report from the Yucatan. Yeah, and, and I agree. I prefer the Mexican rules of the road, too, which is you don't mess with anybody. Basically, right. the bigger vehicle has the right-of-way, and always be careful. You've got to get used to a different style of driving. I mean, Mexican drivers are not as crazy as people think. They don't want to get their fenders scraped any more than we do. But really, you've got to be, you've got to be on your toes. You don't drive half awake. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but driving after dark, is that something for the driving, novice you know, to avoid? I, I, I still advise people don't drive after dark unless you absolutely have to because you just don't know what's going to come out of the side street. It could be a burrow. It could be an unlighted truck, right. you know. Bad gas, is that still a problem? I remember no, that was an issue. No, no, The gas station system is vastly improved. And I'd like to say bathrooms and gas stations are oh, no yeah. longer. Yeah. They used to be sort of a horror show. But now they <laughs> they match any clean bathroom up here. Now that's interesting. There's probably a lot of uh, scar tissue that still <laughs> survives for American travelers who went there back in the 70s. No, it, yeah, <laughs> it was like a David Lynch movie sometimes. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying some intimate insider look at Mexico with the ultimate guidebook writers to Mexico in, in my book, that's for sure. Carl Franz and Lorena Havens, the original authors of The People's Guide to Mexico, out in its first edition in 1972 and still kicking. It's out in a new 14th edition. You guys, thanks a lot, and we'll talk again about uh, the joys of traveling uh, Mexico with the right attitude. Excellent. Great. See you down there, Rick. Okay. Hey, all right. Let's do that. We'll check in with listener calls and emails a little later in the hour to hear how some of your travel tales might inspire the rest of us to follow in your footsteps. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Next, a panel of tour guides from Italy share a perspective you don't often hear talked about. They'll uncover some of the issues of gender equality that 21st century women still have to cope with there. And we'll find out why, in spite of all the challenges they put up with, Italy is still the place they call home. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Connections between Italian and American cultures go back generations. But even in our media-saturated, globalized 21st century, our societies are still very different. Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to examine the social and cultural challenges women face in today's Italy are three women who run their own businesses as tour guides. They each have a foot in both cultures with the expectations of a modern American woman 
integrated into the traditions and old-world setting of today's Italy. Lisa Anderson and Nina Bernardo are American-born. Lisa married an Italian, and they're raising their family in a small town in northern Italy, where her husband grew up. Nina Bernardo went back to Italy to explore her family roots, and for the past 15 years, she's made Rome her home base. And Francesca Caruso joins us to share her perspective as a citizen of Rome who was raised in Italy with the dual identity of an Italian father and an American mother. The stereotypes we hold about a place often have some basis in reality. For example, as an outsider visiting Italy, it's easy to notice the cliché of an Italian man making obvious gestures as every pretty girl walks by, maybe even whistling or giving a cat call. Is this just a cute holdover from days gone by, or is it actually one of the things that suggests that women in Italy do have bigger challenges in terms of how they're perceived and treated? Francesca, how do you feel about this? I think that what I would like to convey is what a struggle it is to be a woman in Italy today and what we have to fight against and what stereotypes we have to fight against. And within how, Italy? Within Italy and, and how hard it is to have a decent life as, as a woman. What are the stereotypes? If I'm sort of an Archie Bunker Italian guy, how am I messed up in my viewpoint of Italian women? Well, because you're going to judge me exclusively by appearances. You're not going to give me a chance. You're Maybe if how you, you cook. Yes, yeah. But if you're watching Italian television at all, the only image of women that you're seeing are usually scantily clad bimbos who have not a lot to say. Now, I've noticed that. Whenever I turn on the TV in a hotel in Italy, it's invariably these and buxom that's been women going that are ditzy. And that's been going on for the past 20 years. And Does a that lot sell? Of... That must sell ads. I mean, they wouldn't do it if it didn't resonate with the people. So can't you just blame the people for this? I think we can probably blame, <laughs> this blame? Is my pet peeve, the Berlusconi media machine who was the first one to put this kind of programming on television, and it's all been downhill ever since. Is that right? I think when he started his private media stations, the very first program he put on television was a quiz show where when the contestants got a correct answer, an Italian housewife took off an article of her clothing, and it's been downhill ever since. Strip Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. And even one of the most... Uh, it's a good program, actually, Striscia la Notizia, which is also on media set, Berlusconi's station. They have the Velina in it which are the dancing girls. This is like every young girl's aspiration now. They want to be a Velina, a dancing girl. This is a serious political program. They have to have some very good stories on it, but they have to have the dancing girls. So how does a mother handle this when you have these negative role models that are propped up? Wouldn't the young girls aspire to be one of the bimbos on Berlusconi's That's TV? exactly what's that's happening, and that's the tragedy for a future generation. What do you do? Well, I think that sometimes, unfortunately, what I'm seeing is that their mothers have bought into that too and have their daughters participate in all of these uh, reality because shows. what and comes along with becoming one of those girls? Yes. It includes fame, wealth, and power. And maybe there's an environment in Italy where the reality is women are going to have a hard time getting an exciting job anyways, so this is your avenue to success. Is there anything to that? I mean, I hate to think that that would be a reality. Yes, I think it's a very complex moment in Italy because it's a moment of transition, so where we still have the old heritage of a traditional figure of the mother, a very virtuous woman, and then this new very aggressive, uh, very superficial model. And because in, things in Italy change very, very slowly, it's a very complicated situation. But even if you send in your curriculum, you have to send your photograph in. And very often, one of the requirements is bella presenza, beautiful presence. No, I that's legal? Yes. It certainly yeah. is. Bella? Bella presenza. In other words, is present. she cute? Is she cute? Whoa. And I think that here in America, that, that would... That wouldn't it be would okay. be illegal. That, that would right. not be okay. That goes on then to dealing with sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, I talk to a lot of my Italian uh, female friends and what they have to deal with in the office that in the United States, their coworkers would be fired immediately, prosecuted maybe, for the kind of comments or even sometimes the touching that goes on. So men can get away with this in Italy? In the working place, uh, th that whole stereotype of getting pinched on the uh, on right. the subway, and I, I think that doesn't happen anymore. No, no, but it's more anymore. subtle now. And uh, what's an example? What would be permissible? That would be inexcusable here in the United States. I think a very heavy compliment on some physical trait, attribute no? that right. you yeah, have. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living as an Italian woman in the 21st century with Francesca Caruso, Nina Bernardo, and Lisa Anderson. How has the position of women changed in the last generation? When you think about, in your case, your mother or your, your uh, mother-in-law's uh, life, is it better now than it was back then? 
Well, I think, for example, for the generation before before ours, a generation of our of our mothers, women went to work only if the family needed an extra income. Otherwise, you didn't work. And if a woman worked, it was considered something that would reflect badly on the man of the family. So the woman was I, supposed to stay at home. Absolutely, and, and I struggled. Cook the pasta. Yes, I even struggled in my university years with my father. I wanted to work, and he said, "You offend me by this desire to go out there and work." So it's a completely different uh, right. Different I think approach. that is a different. Mentality. But now we can. Now we can get uh, university degrees. Now we can have a career. So that's a huge thing that's changed. Then whether we can have a wonderful career or whether we have. Whether we can get somewhere is a different story, but at least we can get started so on that path. Up. Yes. I think more women in Italy are getting university degrees than men are. Yes. And as in terms of population, Italian, I think about 10% of Italians get a university degree, so it's already very low, and the majority of those people are women. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living as an Italian woman in the 21st century. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Allison's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Hi. Um, hey, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious now if the, so the women are working and juggling, like me, 40-something years old, middle class, married, kids, part-time job, helping care for elderly parents, trying to have healthy meals on the table every night. I'm also curious if the men are chipping in like they're expected to here, a lot more with the children and the household chores. That's a good question. I mean, in America, men try to be this uh, sort of contributing part of the domestic scene. Is that considered a, a good attribute, or is that considered unmanly in Italy? In Italy, absolutely not. The men are not taking on their share of the domestic chores. If you compare Italian women to other Western European women, the bulk of the domestic chores still lay on their shoulders. Absolutely. And if you read some startling statistics, like 95% of Italian men do not know how to use a washing machine. They don't know how to make it work. Now, this is not <laughs> European-wide? No. No, oh, this is Italy. No. This is really Italy. clearly. This is this clearly is cl- yes. one of the beautiful things about Italian men. <laughs> I mean, you've all fallen in love with Italian men, I think. Well, yeah, mine I, is I very atypical. Is that, okay, yeah, your men would be yes, atypical. Yes, of course, these are generalizations. <laughs> I mean, there's a small minority of men who help out at home, but I agree with, with Nina that in general. This is no, I have my But it's, it has everything to do with the way they're raised. But then you also have that meaning the men are encouraged to be these little mama's boys, and you even have a word for that. Mamone. Mamone. Talk about mamone in, in, the, in the 21st century. Italian children, but especially Italian boys, are mollycoddled from a very young age. And so everything is done for them. And then well into their adulthood, we have mothers and sometimes even sisters doing their laundry for them, making sure they have meals, so filling their freezers with things they can reheat for themselves. <laughs> it's it's a scary, scary But is that a way reality. to keep men down? I mean, the, these men then are kind of useless. Do women put up with it because, oh, these guys are useless anyways? Or are they being abused? Are the women being abused with this kind of treatment? How, I don't. Quite... I think abuse is a strong word, yeah. but... Taken um, advantage of. Yeah, I would definitely say taken advantage of. But why do Italian women put up with it? Well, I think, again, it's because Italy is, a, is, again, a very traditionalist country. So these are attitudes that have been passed down, if I may say so, since ancient Roman times. Ancient Roman women were in charge of the education of their sons. They had to transmit to them what it meant to be a Roman man. And being a Roman man also implied treating women like things. So it has been women who, over the centuries, have perpetuated this model, this Mm -hmm. system. And that's the thing that I think is a bit devastating at this point. It is, because in some way they're their own worst enemies. Yes, they really are. Last year in Rome, I was talking to people, and not dealing with women's issues and so on, but just in general, people were so disillusioned about change that Fine families with with lots of opportunity aspired to have their children just get government jobs where they could be mindless and not fired and get a paycheck. That's an obsession in Italy. Just get a because get a government job. Security. 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 So women have to kind of have that security too, and it's it's really indicative, I think, of a society that's got some some very fundamental problems. In Italian, they have a word for it. It's called sistemazione. So to be settled in some way in Italy is of the utmost importance. It means that, that you never have any precariousness in your life. So you have a job with a contract where you can never be fired. You get married. You buy your house. You don't get a mortgage for it. Your parents help you out. You have a kid. You're done, and then you don't and have to worry. And this is pervasive. I, now that I think of it, I've got so many women friends in Italy that really have this stalemate with their men, and it's just, what's the word, sistemazione. Sistemazione. Allison in Spokane, is this uh, kind of what you expected, or, or what are your thoughts on that? It's just kind of fascinating. I grew up through the feminist 
second wave of feminism. I remember being mad at my dad for not helping out at home, but now my husband, it's, he he enjoys that. It's a cultural thing. It's completely changed in our culture that husbands are expected to help. They're expected to be involved with the children, and I'm just not exactly sure how that shifted from the 70s into the 2000s. You know, I, it's just so interesting to hear how rooted the Italian women and men are in their roles. I feel sort of sad about that. Yeah, so do we. So do we. But I do want to tell you, though, that the feminist uh, movement had an enormous impact on Italian society. If I was able to go to university and able to support myself with a job, it's because of the feminist movement. Now, you've got this Catholic kind of um, environment in the Madonna. I mean, Madonna is on the tip of every tongue, it seems like, in Italy. How does that work into the whole equation? I think that really leads to stereotypes in the way men categorize women. And I think in Italy, it's still very much true to put women into two categories. Either you are the Madonna or you are the whore. And so either you are the pure, upright, upstanding person that I'm going to marry and is going to be the mother of my children, and then the other one is the one that I could have some fun with. And I think that is and then still women, quite pervasive. And then women sort of have to choose what they're going to what be. What they're going to be. There's, these are your options. Are you pure or are you just or a whore? And whores might have more fun, but if for sistematazione, sooner or later, you're going to get into right, the Madonna Right, exactly. Category. You have no chance of sistematazione in As that category. Whore. Allison, thank you very much for your call, and uh, oh. it's been a stimulating conversation. Oh, thank you. Fascinating. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living as an Italian woman in the 21st century with three women who are doing exactly that. Francesca Caruso, Nina Bernardo, and Lisa Anderson. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Lois is on the phone from Cincinnati. Lois, thanks for your call. Yes. We just traveled in Italy, and uh, we saw so many cathedrals and churches and all the religious paintings of the past. But then one wonders, how does that affect your uh, culture today? How important is the Catholic religion in the lives of Italians today? If it is a significant factor, would it be a more cultural or faith-based value? I think that's an excellent question. I think that's something that maybe for Americans we have to remind you is that in Italy there's no religious differentiation. What does that mean? What do you mean? Well, over 95% of the Italians are Catholic, so there's really very little awareness of other faiths and other religions. Okay, so religion means you're Catholic. Yes, so it's a culture. It's exactly what you said. It's it's cultural, yes. It's, right. it's a culture you're raised in. It's a value system that you're raised in, much more than the actual practicing faith. And how does that impact women, then? It's the image of Mary. It's a self-sacrificing kind of the backbone image. backbone of the yeah. family. Right. Exactly. The mother with a capital M. And then the Catholic Church would have a huge impact on even the laws that They have a have very strong Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. And political parties like to cozy up to the Catholic Church. So what are the contentious issues among laws now in Italy that that women would be tuned into? I've heard talk over the last few years about uh, repealing abortion laws, Mm -hmm. and Italian women took to the streets when that was... To defend the church's stance on it? No. Oh, to go... To maintain the right to to have an abortion. And it's it's the abortion rate in Italy is extremely low. I think it's among the lowest in all European countries. But they do not want to lose the right to have a safe and legal abortion. And it's subsidized by the state. If you need an abortion, you can go through the state medical system. So the Catholic Church and the government was trying to change that, and women hit the streets to defend that. Absolutely not. And Catholic as Italy is, there's no problem with birth control. People can control it. Right. It's very easily accessible. But change. again, because of the sistemazione that we talked about earlier, it takes much longer to get to that point where you feel that you have the stability to start a family. You know, my husband's parents' generation, they were able to to work and save, even if they weren't doing anything incredibly important in terms of job. Whereas we're looking at our generation, we're never going to be able to do for our children what his parents were able to do for us. But Italians still have that objective. They want to provide a home for their children. They want to completely pave the road to systemizar. I see, see. You know, we've been sitting here talking about all the frustrations of being a woman in Italy. But you're all free people. You're all very uh, talented and capable. You could carve out a beautiful existence anywhere, and you choose to live in Italy. Let's finish just by saying, what's the best thing? What do you appreciate about being a woman in Italy? Francesca, (laughs) if anything. No, but I have to say, one thing I do appreciate about Italian men, and I say this because my father and my brother are Italian, is how sensitive they can be and how unafraid they are of expressing their weaknesses, their moments of fragility. 
Yes, oh, I think I that's, like a, that. that's a... I would yeah. definitely with, agree with Francesca there. Yeah. And they are in some ways more poetic because they are in tune with that sensitivity. But that's the courting stage, isn't it? My no. husband is still a gentleman. Is that? Yes. Well, that's good. But once the exaggerated phase is over, I always quote that, that the famous survey among European women who are the best lovers in Europe, the Italians, but only for two weeks. And as Nina always says, they have a short, short shelf, shelf life. life. <laughs> <laughs> the best lovers in Europe, the Italian men. But... They have a short shelf life. I love that. Two weeks, that. two weeks. But I, I think that sometimes that sensitivity, I think it does stay, and I think it adds quality to relationships, the fact okay. that you can discuss uh, So that's things. endearing. I think so. Nina, what do you like about being an Italian woman? I would agree with Francesca about that, and I would just say that when I moved to Italy, it is, for all its faults and all its complications, and maybe that's what makes it appealing, just an easy place to fall in love with. And then once you fall in love... It's very hard, I think, to extricate yourself from that once you realize some of the negative realities of it. You've already fallen in love. So Interesting, then, yes. So Because it is a place that disarms you. you absolutely, just, it you, does. You, you and just, when you get there and you don't know the reality yet, everything seems beautiful. And then you get in touch with the reality, and that makes it more interesting, I think. And I love the, I love the contradictions of Italy. Because both you and Lisa went to Italy 15 years ago, intending to stay for a year. Right. I have a very good friend who's British, married to an Italian as well. And we talk about, you know, when we're having a bad Italy day, a bad Italian day. But then we start going over, but if we were back in England, in the States, you know, I think the quality of life that we enjoy there is still exceptional. You have an actual term, we're having a bad Italian day? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Say more about that. What does that mean? Just, I can't imagine having a bad Italian day. <laughs> <laughs> Lois in Cincinnati is dreaming of an Italian day, a bad Italian day. All right, me too, Lois. <laughs> Try going to the post office. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, I think you've got more good Italian days than bad Italian well, days. Well, that's why we're all there, I Yeah, think. that's why we're still that's there. Right. Nina, Francesca, Lisa, mille grazie. And buon fortuna, can I say that? Buona fortuna. <laughs> Buona fortuna. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Chiura sta bocca che pare una rosa, sogna chiura stocchia tunna tunna, che quando sogna tu, sogna gli uomini, e chiura gli occhi e non parlare, sogna gli uomini degli umani, e chiura gli occhi e non aveva paura, sogna l'uomini fatta su natura. In a moment, we'll check in with your own travels in Italy or anywhere else you've been. We're at 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. That's where you can write us about anything you hear on each week's show. Listener travel reports to inspire your next getaway. That's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. What do you think of what we talk about here on Travel with Rick Steves? Does it inspire memories from your own travels? Or do you make plans to visit places we talk about? Let's check in right now with some of our traveling listeners who've emailed us about what they've heard on the show in recent months. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com and our phone number, that's 877-333-RICK. Brad from Woodenville, Washington, heard us interview a little while ago the author and Tuscan winemaker Ferenc Maté when the subject of relying too much on modern technology in our travels came up. Ferenc and I weren't too thrilled with relying on GPS on a smartphone to get around in unfamiliar places, and Brad has a different take on that. Brad, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, how how do you approach uh, GPS and so on? Well, first let me stipulate that my wife would be the first one to tell you that we're all too connected when we get out on the road, (laughs) And, and I'm probably very guilty of that. Um, but one of the compromises we've had, and I've, I've found it to be a terrific souvenir and memento of trips, is that I use the GPS on my smartphone to record where it is we've been uh, on, say, driving trips. We took a, uh, a long driving trip from uh, Stuttgart through northwestern Germany and into Flanders and Normandy and ended up in Paris. And I used the GPS on my smartphone just to record where we had been 
and then I download all of those files that the GPS records into Google Earth. And it gives me a, a great souvenir of uh, just seeing exactly where we've been and all the sites we've seen, and it's a great reminder of the trip. Now, that is great. Now, that assumes you've got a smartphone that's unlocked and, and roaming around Europe. Is that right? Actually, the unlocked isn't important because the GPS operates autonomously of the cell network. Hmm. So, in fact, in, I, I bought a SIM card in Germany, but it didn't work in uh, Belgium and France. I didn't have to have a data plan. I didn't have to have a carrier. I just used a free app from, I, I have an Android phone, so I used a free app from Google uh, called MyTracks. Hmm. that works as simply as, you know, starting up the app, hitting the record button, and setting the phone on the dash of the car and uh, letting letting it record. Does the phone just, you just have it intermittently on and, and it still works? Uh, actually, the app leaves the GPS on and uh, just <laughs> runs continuously. That it, is incredible. My Tracks, that's a free app. Yep. And you can use Android or an iPhone. There are lots of apps like that uh, for it. iPhone. For any, I I started doing this years ago on a Palm Pilot. Right. Uh, so you know, it's it's been around forever. Because I'm still I'm still getting up to speed on all this. I but I do know now that you mention it that even if I'm not roaming or or using my iPhone over there for um, how I would use it here in the United States, the Google Map function will work, and I can actually turn it on in the morning and uh, get onto Google Maps, then then get offline. And the Google Maps is still there, and I've got everything I need for my days navigating. Right. And now with this with this particular uh, app that I'm using, you don't have the maps. It's just recording the GPS location. Right. But uh, it, it downloads into Google Earth or Google Maps. Great or souvenir. Any, any number of mapping programs. So if your parents want to know where you're going every minute on your European vacation, exactly. you can say, well, I'll just have my tracks, and you can have the whole list, Mom and Dad. <laughs> exactly. And, that, then, and then you can print out postcards. <laughs> I love it. Hey, well, thank you so much, Brad. And uh, I think in the future, everybody will be <laughs> be that wired. But uh, right now, it's it's fun new toys for us traveling the world. Exactly. All right. So it's my tracks, and we can get a whole GPS rundown of everywhere we went on our trip anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. All right. Happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Bye now. Bye-bye. Eric in Urbana, Illinois, sent us this email. I heard your show a while back about viewing art in Europe outside the museums, and I was reminded of a powerful experience I had. In the main cemetery in Turku, Finland, there's a section devoted to the men and even the boys, the age range is about 15 to 50, who died resisting the Russian invasion at the start of World War II. The major monument is not military symbolism, but instead it's a black marble figure of a grieving woman. Seeing it was one of the deepest emotional experiences I've ever had with any work of art. Wow. So the uh, cemetery in Turku, in the west end of Finland, a memorial for the men who died resisting the Russian invasion back in World War II. Thanks, Eric, from Urbana. And Ginny in Henrietta, Oklahoma, emailed us to tell us about a trip she took to Poland. Ginny writes this. After graduating from college a couple years ago, one of my girlfriends and I went to Poland for two weeks. Our friends thought we were crazy because who goes to Poland? Well, I was curious about the place, and it's one of the few spots in Europe that's affordable, even a bargain. We had such a fun time. The young people there were very friendly and loved chatting with Americans. Once again, this is unusual for Europe. Warsaw was one of our favorites, particularly the gardens. Gdansk was great, too. Also, the medieval forest near Belarus was a treat. Amazing food as well. I encourage all to visit Poland. And that's Ginny from the Polish Tourist Board. We're reviewing some of our favorite emails that have been sent to radio at ricksteves.com. We're seeing what you, our listeners, have to say. By phone, we're at 877-333-7425. You can also post a comment about what you hear on Travel with Rick Steves in our radio message board. It's one of the features you'll find in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Elena in Mount Vernon, Washington, writes us about her travels to the far south of Italy. She wrote after hearing us talk about the region a little while ago on Travel with Rick Steves. Elena writes, My family is from Calabria, and I've been back twice to visit in the past 10 years. It's absolutely beautiful, relatively inexpensive, and the people are so warm and friendly. You can find beaches as well as mountains and wonderful cultural sites such as ethnic Albanian villages. It can be a bit of work to communicate if you don't speak Italian, and getting around can be challenging with very windy, mountainous roads in the interior and limited public transportation options. 
But when it comes to Calabria, vale la pena, as the locals would say. That's, it's worth the trouble. Your show just reminded me that I need to plan another trip to Calabria. Ciao. I like that. Vale la pena. It's worth the trouble. Boy, if you have a land where, where that's one of the key phrases, there must be a little bit of complexity, but hey, that's what keeps away the tourist crowds, and that's what opens up all the travel magic. Elena from Mount Vernon, thanks for emailing us, and anybody can share their travel tips, their insights, their best experiences. Just send us an email at radio at ricksteves.com. Martha in Ames, Iowa, emailed us, and she shares a snapshot of her trip to Sicily. Martha writes, My memories of a trip to Sicily a few years ago center around the completely crazy drivers on the road and trash everywhere on the road. You called it controlled chaos. I'd call it complete chaos. Of course, the food was fabulous, and likewise the scenery, but the chaos and the trash everywhere, that was overwhelming. Martha, thanks for the candid insight to traveling in Sicily. Yeah, if you're looking for tidiness, I'd, I'd recommend from uh, Italy going north instead of south. When you go north, you'll find things in order, you'll find the streets clean, and you'll find everything punctual. But when you go farther south, you get chaos, and chaos translates into calories, memories, and new friends. Think about traveling south and try to look at the people rather than the garbage below their feet. And for more on Sicily, Maggie's on the phone from Edmonds, Washington, and her grandfather emigrated from Sicily. Maggie contacted us to tell us how some segments of our Southern Italy show reminded her of her trip there. Maggie, thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, tell us about your take on Sicily. That's where your family's from, eh? My grandfather, yes. He Mm -hmm. came over in the early 1900s with $10 in his pocket, and he was from a little town about an hour southwest of Palermo, um, called Vita. Hmm. And a couple years ago, I found the last Fimia in Vita, wrote to her. She wrote back, and we were able to visit her in 2008. Wow, now Fimia, that's your family name, Fimia? Fimia, correct. Yeah, so you visited a distant relative, and what was that like? Because you didn't know her before. You were just sort of uh, introducing yourself to her, huh? Correct. We rented the car, my husband and I, in Palermo and drove down there and found it. It's um, a little town that was, uh, half of it was destroyed by an earthquake in the 60s. But this is where my people came from, and I felt like I was home. It was uh, mm-hmm. an amazing experience. And she didn't know you from, from Adam. She didn't know us from Adam, but so, she had gotten this letter, wow. and she welcomed us with so, and, open and, arms. And your family name is F-I-M-E-A, Fimia? Uh, F-I-M-I-A. F-I-M-I-A. So any of us could go to Vita, V-I-T-A, and say we're Fimia, (laughs) (laughs) friends of Maggie, and we could meet your relatives, and they they would welcome us. Well, chances are you have some Sicilian in your background if you look farther enough. (laughs) I joked, but I always did the same thing with my relatives up in Scandinavia, and it occurred to me, I could get out a phone book anywhere in Norway and just call somebody up and say, you know, I'm Rick, whose relatives came from here, and uh, let's get together. That's exactly right. I've done it in Ireland. I actually did that same thing in Ireland where I pulled out the phone book and started calling Magners and McGrath. Bill Magner was the first one. He said, ah, you're not the right data. you got to come down about 30 miles. And we did. Uh-huh. I've been back nine times. So, you, you know, um, you could learn more about your own family tree by calling strangers with the same last name right. in Ireland because they all know how they're connected better than we do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, it was an amazing experience. It's wonderful to experience the culture with someone who lives there. And this town is close to a lot of things. One thing I was struck by... Sicily, and especially looking back, I've been there twice now, is it's smaller than Connecticut. Hmm. It's a little bit smaller than the state of Connecticut. But it's like going to the world because it was such a crossroads there and still is. You know, that's so true because so many different um, colonial powers came through and and took over Sicily. You've got layer after layer after layer, don't you? Right, going back to the Phoenicians, the Greeks, Carthage, Romans. And so all that architecture is there, mm. all that art is mm. there, and music and the food. It's worth going to Sicily just to have lunch and mm. experience the, the rice balls, the fried mm-hmm. rice balls. Oh, yeah, you gotta, you, you got to bone up on the, on the cuisine a little bit so you know what to order, and then go to a town that's got no tourism. I would imagine a place like Vitar. There's a, probably a hundred little towns like that. There's a hundred, and... Shiaka's another little one that we were struck with. My my daughter and I ended up there. We just kind of went where the wind blew us, 
and ended up in a little town called Shaka, which is mm. on the coast. It's a major fishing port. Mm. I don't eat fish, but my daughter does, and we tried to find something that was a little out of the way that had a view. There was a sign out front that said, uh, whatever, 14 lira, 20 lira for lunch, yeah. no menu, and you walked in. Oh, I love it. And they served her six or seven courses of the catch of the day. Um, oh. She started to cry around the fourth or fifth, because ah. she couldn't, and I just kept pouring her glasses of wine, and she did fine. So uh, You know, that distinguishes travelers from just um, less industrious tourists. I mean, to go to the far reaches, to find a local relative, yeah. to, to eat in a little restaurant that, that doesn't have an English menu, and it's, it's not only richer and, and, and more real, it's cheaper, isn't it? It's cheaper, and I'll remember that meal with her yeah. forever. So you got 14, um, 14 euros for your meal. You're staying free with, with Auntie Vimeo. Vimeo, yeah, uh, Rosa. <laughs> the first time we stayed with Rosa, with my husband and me, for about three or four days, she did not want us to leave her sight. I love it. Which was kind of, that was... So plan a lot of time if you go visit Well, relatives. that's a good point. When you're staying with relatives, you don't want to just use them as a, as a sofa to right. crash on, but you want to spend right. some time. I would say it's it's fair to say that wherever your heritage is, wherever your distant ancestors are from, you can go there, and if you can look up some people who are related, it's going to be a blessing for everybody involved. Yes, they love, it's like they're waiting for you to come back. I even found a relative I had no idea existed, and he had a stack of letters. This is in Ireland. Oh. stack of letters from my great-aunts and uncles to his mother, because they were first cousins, answered all sorts of questions in these letters that, mm, uh, that I had been wondering about. I, visiting relatives in Norway, I was very stressed out about how would I have an appetite enough at the next meal to eat right. more. Because <laughs> they took me from one relative to the next, and they showed their love by feeding you. Right. And it was literally stressful to know that I have to eat more in eat two hours. Eat more, manja, manja. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of Americans who we're so sensitive and polite, we, we would be worried about putting them out. And I, I would say the irony is you are being impolite if you don't look yes. them up, if you have the opportunity, because yes. you're going to brighten their lives. If you, It's just a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. So, it is. Maggie, and thanks so much. That's you, thank you, Rick. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. We're letting our listeners be our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Write us with your travel stories and impressions at radio at ricksteves.com. In our recent interview with Calvin Alexander Ramsey, we had several comments, and uh, Ramsey spoke to us about the Green Book. That was the guidebook for African-American road trippers back in the Jim Crow era. Neil from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, sent us this email after hearing the show. I was mowing the lawn today and listening to the show about African-Americans traveling in the American South with the Green Book, and I found it to be interesting, informative, as well as appalling. You did a nice job of providing some insight into what we'd call an unfortunate chapter, to say the least, in American history. Keep up the good work. Yeah, that was fascinating to think about. Black Americans couldn't travel without a listing of places that would, would let them know where they could stop for the night or get a meal or fill up the tank. And Kathy in Oxford, Ohio, recently wrote us this email. A few weeks ago, I was a caller on open phones with Rick, and the caller before me was talking about visiting Tuscany. She asked Rick for any suggestions on a novel to read about Tuscany before she visited there, and I want to suggest the book The House of the Wind by Titania Hardy. It's a great historical novel, following the story of peoples living in Santo Pietro during the Middle Ages and then living in the same town in 2007. It tells quite a bit about the Etruscan history of the area and about Volterra. It talks about the Valley of Serenity and San Galgano. And it follows two great love stories as well. I highly recommend this book for anybody visiting Tuscany, The House of the Wind. Sounds good. Not long ago, Italian tour guide Alfio de Moro explained the proper way to eat pasta on our show, and tongue firmly planted in his cheek, he explained the strict rules to avoid committing what he called a culinary crime. You know, there are rules about spaghetti, you know. Uh, as a kid, I was watching my mom preparing the spaghetti, and my mom never even thought of breaking the spaghetti before dipping them in the, in the boiling water. So you have to eat it without breaking it. You don't want smaller pieces, okay? Well, Kathleen in Fresno, California, heard our conversation, and she 
calls us now to share this confession. Kathleen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. So, yes, I have to confess, like they talked about on the show, I am a spaghetti killer. Oh, no. And in my... <laughs> it's not just spaghetti killing at my house. It's more of a massacre. Um, he had recommended that you never break your pasta when you put it in the, the water. You just leave it whole noodles, but... I always break up the pasta, maybe because I always have small pans. And then not only do I break up the pasta when I cook it, but when it gets on my plate, then I slice it up with a fork and knife so I can eat it with a spoon and not have to worry about the mess. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So first of all, it's a mass mass massacre. You you break up all the little pieces of spaghetti, and you pour them into the water. Yes, I do. Okay. And then you you cut them up so they can fit on a spoon. Yes. I can I can just hear Alfio just saying, oh, they've got a phrase, I forget the Italian, but they say, I throw down my arms. They're so uh, amazed yes. and frustrated. I throw down my arms. Well, <laughs> n- next time you make spaghetti, what are you going to do? Well, actually, I was making a big pot of spaghetti sauce last night, and I didn't have any spaghetti, so I couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to call <laughs> Rick Steves and talk about my spaghetti-making, you know, prowess here. And so, but I had rigatoni. So okay. no need to break up the rigatoni or okay. cut it up into smaller bites because it just fits on my spoon. Well, I'm going to tell Alfio DiMauro in Italy that Kathleen in Fresno is going to stop breaking her spaghetti before she tosses it into water, okay? I, I promise. Okay. Thank you for your confession. Okay. You're forgiven. Thank you, Rick. Happy okay. Travels. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for website help to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can add your comments or travel reports to our online feedback forum. It's part of the extras you'll find each week in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.